Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're covering films that rage against the machine. And today we're talking about the 1993 film Falling Down, which has a lot of white guy rage to talk about. <laughs> I'm your host, a man who just wants a Coke to cost the same as it did in 1963. Is that so much to ask? My co-host is Guy, who would never get caught eating breakfast after 11 a.m. Hello. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. <laughs> I don't think either of us had seen this film, right? Uh, did, what was, what did you, what were your impressions or am I wrong? And had you actually seen it? I had not seen it. My folks saw it in the theater way back when, and they, they both really enjoyed it and they recommended it to me and I just never got around to it. So it was, uh, it was interesting to finally get to get to see what it was about. It was, it wasn't quite about what I thought it was. It was, mm -hmm. um, Similar, but uh, there were some details that I didn't uh, expect. So. Yeah, I want to dive into that a bit before we, we get into the film and kind of talk about my overall kind of the journey of my reaction while watching this <laughs> film. You know, it is a film that did well when it came out. It was successful. It was reasonably well critically received. But it's not a film I hear talked about. You know, I mm -hmm. only knew about it and we put it on our list because of, I just remembered the ads and everything when mm -hmm. we were younger and it seemed to fit into our theme. But what I did know was this idea of, oh, you know, it's a white guy who kind of gets, gets fed up with everything and, you know, starts uh, shooting stuff up or something. And, mm -hmm. and so that, that interfered with my thinking about the film as I was watching it. Because the first quarter, especially in the first half overall, it does feel like that's what the film is, right? Oh, and as we will talk about, oh, you know, the the insults of daily life and people being jerks and companies being jerks have driven this man to the end, right? Or mm. to the brink. And then in the last half of the, and I did not like it and I didn't like the acting and I didn't, you know, we'll talk about all this as we go through it. Mm. I just felt like it was not, not good. Then the last half of the film, things get, way weirder and more complex and my opinion about what was going on really changed and i found it much more interesting so mm. i'm sort of giving that arc in part because anyone listening if they just feel like oh he didn't like the film i'm not going to listen to this podcast no it's actually it's worth listening because it, it's a there's a lot more to talk about <laughs> mm. than it might seem up front very relevant. This was literally being filmed as the 1992 LA riots were occurring. Hmm. It caused them to have to stop filming several times and it caused them some trouble as the film came out because, you know, the LA riots had these things like people going to Korean markets and stealing from them and busting in the windows and everything. And that's mm -hmm. a part of this film. And even <laughs> unemployed defense workers took offense at it. So the mm -hmm. Korean community took offense, you know, at how the Korean market was presented and unemployed defense contractors took offense and, and all this <laughs> that caused them some bumps. Mm. So we start out and for a while while the credits rolling, we just get some very subtle breathing sounds. I don't even know how much you would hear them in the theater, you know, mm -hmm. but wearing, uh, wearing headphones, you can hear them. 
And then there's a huge close-up of a mouth and lips, which <laughs> reminded me of the opening of Citizen Kane. And there's actually some other imagery in the film, surprisingly, uh, that also kind of references Citizen Kane. Get to. Mm-hmm. Then we see the eyes and the glasses, the camera's kind of moving around. Turns out to be Michael Douglas. And his name, I'm not going to reveal here because it's sort of a plot point as it goes along, at least mm-hmm. the name that's used in the, the script and yeah. for the movie. So I'm just going to call him Michael Douglas. Uh, <laughs> and he's sitting in a car and he seems to be very upset. And we slow, you can't originally, uh, it looks like maybe he's in his garage, but you know, as the camera pulls out, we see that he's stuck in a huge traffic jam. Everything that's happening here, there, there are payoffs later on in the last half of the film we learned that actually change the meaning of what we're seeing, even in these very first shots, right? We're mm-hmm. seeing a guy going to work. At least that's what we think. Right. <laughs> And we learn later that it's actually completely different than what we think. And it it really changes Mm -hmm. the meaning of what's going on. Yeah. And we get just, uh, they spend a long time on this sequence. All their credits are rolling and everything looks bad. It's, you know, this is in LA and it's kind of the, you know, 1993. So there was a lot more smog and stuff than there is these days. There's a, a little, probably Hispanic girl holding a doll in the back of a car, looking at him. She seems, you know, very forlorn. And in the back of the car where she is, I'm pretty sure there's a Bob's Big Boy bobblehead. And I <laughs> I loved Bob's Big Boy when I was a kid. You know, it's a burger place. And I would go there as I was probably seven or eight years old. And at that time, the original Battlestar Galactica was coming out. And they would do, like every week or every month or something, a little comic book with the Bob's Big Boy character. And they had him do this whole interview and go through the set of Battlestar Galactica. So I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Was, <laughs> uh, and I remember him saying it costs a million dollars an episode, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> and we see, you know, because nobody's moving anywhere, there are women putting on makeup. There's there are kids on a bus hanging out the window. Now, this it's not a school bus, <laughs> it's some other kind of bus, but these kids are like 10 or something, so they're presumably going to school. And they're just very raucous and throwing stuff and you know, out the window and Michael Douglas's um, air conditioning in the car isn't working. And and this is mm-hmm. one of those themes, you know, of course we saw this and do the right thing. And you see it in other films, it's always the hottest day of the year or whatever. So he's sweating and it's just obviously a really bad traffic jam. But I think the, the true secret to the whole film is that we see this big Garfield doll stuck to the window, as those are. And in fact, right before he jumps out of the car, when sort of everything starts going wrong, they close in on Garfield's face and you just see his giant mouth and teeth and everything. So, so that, <laughs> yeah. that's my theory. <laughs> that's got a, uh, the teeth are, uh, they're not like normal teeth. They're, uh, they're jagged, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're, you know, angular, I should say they're sharp. They're filed down. There could be significance to the Garfield because sometime later, Garfield studies uh, really took a step forward with um, Lasagna Cat. Now, there's there's one episode with John Blythe Barrymore that uh, you should check out if you have an hour to spare. I don't think I know anything about this. I do know about the comic where they take out everything... I think that Garfield says, oh, which makes John like Garfield seem without Garfield <laughs> yeah. or something. I've seen <laughs> so that. John too, is just yeah. talking to himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So what is lasagna cat? I don't it's a it's a series on YouTube, and some of them are just a couple minutes long, but they're all. So is it actual Garfield, or is it sort of a comment on it? Or? It is. I guess you'd say it's comment on Garfield. I think they take actual episodes of the comic strip, and they uh, they'll recreate it, or they'll do different different angles on it. This one, the John Blythe Barrymore one, is like a whole hour of him talking about the brilliance of this one particular strip. It's uh, <laughs> very entertaining, but uh, well, I'll have to check it out. So, yeah, there there could be there could be some kind of uh, significance to the Garfield doll and uh, you know fundamental interconnectedness of all things, <laughs> kind of way. You know, the dirt gently uh, theory could be. Well, Garfield pushes him over the edge, and finally Michael <laughs> Douglas can't take it anymore. And he gets out of his car, and he, he takes his uh, work briefcase with him, which is going to be a very important theme throughout the movie. One of the other people driving a car asks what he's doing. Why is he getting out of his car? Because, of course, that's going to screw everybody up. And he yells that he's going home. And they're, on an, uh, they're in an underpass, and he walks out of the underpass into the grass. And this is the actually the very first thing that doesn't quite match up, right? Like, as I said, we just assume I mean, this guy is in a work, you know, white work shirt and tie. And he is, um, we mentioned, but he's kind of buzz cut. He, he, it's pretty mm-hmm. obvious he's like some kind of IBM engineer type, right? Yeah. So we assume he's going to work, but his he says, no, he's going home. So, well, okay, maybe he decided not to go to work, you know, mm-hmm. um, and just to go back home. And also in this traffic jam is Robert Duvall, who is playing Prendergast. And when a cop motorcycle goes by, he gets out of his car to see what's up. Turns out the cop is checking out the car that Michael Douglas abandoned. This is one of the things that just set me off right from the beginning of the first half of this film, which is the cop and the bystander guy, the one who had asked, you know, what Michael Douglas was doing. They're talking to Robert Duvall. And this is just bad acting. (laughs) And you see it throughout the film, especially by the side characters. It is high school level acting where it's just clear people were given some lines and thrown into the set and they just said them, you know, and and, uh, it, it, it really, the execution at this level is just really inferior. And I think about a film which has a lot of similarities to these, and we might talk about it later to this one, and that's Taxi Driver. Mm. And Taxi Driver, does, you know, has many of the same themes of, of violence and the guy, you know, reacting to things, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it is very well acted and very well executed. And it just puts this to shame, certainly the first half. Mm-hmm. Um, at that kind of stuff. But that's my argument anyway. If you feel differently, you can feel free to. Yeah, I um... I don't have a good ability to distinguish between good and bad acting. I mean, if if I like acting, I'll notice it. But uh, bad acting, most of the time, it just goes right over my head. I'm going to take <laughs> your word for it, though. <laughs> well, it's probably a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, Prendergast just looks like a civilian and the cop hassles him to get back into his car. And then Prendergast pulls out his badge, and it turns out he's part of the robbery department at the police department. And he convinces the cop to help him move the car aside so that people can get by. And while he's doing that, he notices that the license plate is a vanity plate, D-F-E-N-S, so defends or defense. <laughs> and this is what the script in the movie credits name 
Michael Douglas. Right. Um, even though we discover he has a different name, but this is what they name him. Now I'm just going to call him Michael Douglas. Cause I, I'm not going to call him defense. <laughs> 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 um, so Prendergast happens to mention that this is his last day as a cop. And again, I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> that theme. And it's funny. I checked lethal weapon. It came out in 1987. So that was six years earlier. So I think they did this on purpose. You know, this had to be sort of a commentary. And as we'll see, and to their credit, they go to a different place with that, right? So mm-hmm. Lethal Weapons, that whole, oh, I'm almost out. I'm getting out of here. And then I'm being pulled back in. And, <laughs> and this t- this takes a little different direction. Yeah. We now switch to Venice Beach in Los Angeles. And Barbara Hershey and her daughter and their little dog are heading back home after shopping. The phone is ringing. <laughs> this is one of those you know, things change so much, right? Like kids today anyone 20 or younger today watching this maybe even older than that would have no idea the feeling here because she barbara hershey starts rushing to the house oh my god the phone is ringing it's like <laughs> of course, you don't have cell phones on everybody we did see a cell phone in one of the cars earlier but it was one of those big brick cell phones right. that only, you know asshole rich people would have you know in the movies <laughs> so kids so the deal is when you just had a physical phone in your house and it might be an important call maybe someone's trying to give you a job or you know maybe someone got hurt or whatever you got to get to that phone or you will miss the call and you might miss the opportunity or not know what's going on so she runs into the house you know to get to the phone she picks it up she doesn't hear anything eventually she hangs up and we see that it was Michael Douglas calling her from a payphone, a payphone, kids. <laughs> this other thing <laughs> uh, that used to be very important in movies. Anyway, so he intends to call again, uh, but he doesn't have enough change because you have to put money in the payphone. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's his, actually it's like uh, Memento, right? Memento is one of my favorite movies of all time. But a major plot point in it is that he takes um, uh, uh, what was the name of those? The photos where it comes out and. You have to wave it around to get it. Polaroids. Yeah, he takes Polaroids of the whole thing. And of course, again, just makes no sense these days. Right? Mm. <laughs> so anyway, we have this situation where the entire events of the movie are kicked off because he doesn't have enough change to make another phone call. Mm-hmm. So he goes into a nearby Korean store to get change, you know, but and well, I, you know, it's something we can probably talk about in, in our conclusion. Uh, but as everybody in this movie is, the store owner is an asshole to him, and he says he won't give him change unless he buys something. So Michael Douglas goes to the soda fridge, or what you might call the pop fridge, <laughs> and, uh, opens it up, and it's really cool inside the fridge, and he puts a can of Coke to his head, so he's really enjoying some coolness um, that relieves the heat. He puts the Coke on the counter, but he's told it's 85 cents and that's not going to give him enough change. I think he needs 50 cents for the phone call mm-hmm. or 25 cents probably, but who knows, depending on the time and the 80, it costing 85 cents means he won't have enough change from his dollar to be able to use the phone. And he now goes into um, a little bit of a racist rant. I'll give you 50 cents. You give me 50 cents change. <laughs> no way. Yes. Way. Drink 85 cents. You pay a go. What's a phi? I don't understand a phi. There's a V in the word. It's five. Uh, you don't got V's in China? Not Chinese. I'm Korean. Uh, whatever. You come to my country, you take my money, you don't even have the grace to learn how to speak my language? Uh, You're Korean. Uh, you have any idea how much money my country has given your country? After his rant, the store owner tells him to go. He doesn't want any trouble. And Michael Douglas says, no, he's staying. 
And the store owner grabs a bat and Michael Douglas wrestles it from him. It's a baseball bat, but it's very short. It's like, you know, yeah. foot and a half long or something <laughs> like that. Maybe it's a sawed off bat, you know, <laughs> more powerful, you know, the Douglas smashes some things and the store owner is terrified and says, just take my money. It's funny because it really offends Douglas. He's like, I'm not here to take your money. <laughs> you're just, you're the thief. You're charging too much for stuff. I'm just trying to fix that. Now I'm just standing up for my rights as a consumer. <laughs> and uh, so he stands up for his rights by smashing everything in the store that he considers to be overpriced. You know, he'll ask the owner what the price of something is, and then he smashes it. And the owner starts lying and, you know, underpricing it. But Michael Douglas is not fooled. <laughs> and I have to say, when you have riots like the L.A. riots or maybe some riots we experienced a couple of years ago, I'm always perplexed by the idea that I'm going to stick it to the man by going and to a, a Korean or Asian store owned by an independent owner and breaking in the window and stealing everything. <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess that's one way to stick it to the man. <laughs> so finally, last thing he does is ask the store owner how much that soda costs. And now the store owner agrees that it costs 50 cents. <laughs> in fact, as part of this, I think he says, Douglas says somewhere in there that he's resetting the prices to 1963. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which would have been 30 years, I guess, before this film. So so he pays his dollar and takes his 50 cents of change and leaves. And he's carrying his briefcase. And now he's carrying a bat. <laughs> and now we switch to Prender Gast at his desk. And it turns out his colleagues have filled his drawer with sand to represent his retirement destination, which we'll find more out more about in a bit. And we get... Now here, I know you say you can't find, see bad acting. Oh my God, we get a lot of bad cop <laughs> acting uh, and cheesy jokes and all this. And But also part of the sub-theme here, as we'll discover, is everyone's sort of trying to act nice toward him and it's his retirement day and all that. But basically, except for his ex-partner, nobody in this police department likes him. <laughs> you know, they're all glad that he's leaving. <laughs> and they also helpfully talk about how because it's his last day he really needs to be careful and they remind him that a previous cop was killed just a couple minutes before his retirement he got run over by a truck <laughs> so you know a little bit of potential foreshadowing we'll see yeah and also they make fun of the fact that well but his job isn't dangerous anyway because he's working behind a desk and uh, we'll find out that also turns out to be important yeah and then he has some banter with Sandra, who um, they, I, I don't know if they ever directly say this, but it's pretty clear she was his partner before he left the street and took a desk job. Yeah. And later on, she does refer to him as partner once. Yeah. And uh, they agreed to do lunch on his last day. <laughs> I know I'm commenting on the acting. I'm just going to say, this is not a case of an actress who spent, you know, six months learning how to act like a cop, you know, <laughs> Kayana Reeves style or whatever. I mean, she doesn't dress like a cop. She doesn't act like a cop. She doesn't talk like a cop. We just accept that she's a cop. Uh, and then after she leaves, Prendergast pulls a sandy picture of his young daughter from the drawer. And this will also become important. We just have so much set up in this film. <laughs> We now see Barbara Hershey on the phone while she's at her sink, filling up a water gun for her daughter. And this, of course, is Chekhov's water gun. I knew exactly what was going to happen. Well, let me ask you, did you get, did you know where that was going? No, no, I didn't. Yeah. It was, uh, ended up being a surprise for me. 
Because <laughs> it's a very, I mean, it's not metal or anything. It's plastic. It's blue plastic. Right. But it's a very realistic looking gun. So I'm like, yeah, I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> and she's talking on the phone to someone about her daughter's birthday party that's going to happen like at sunset. And the daughter wants to know when they're going to bake the cake. And while she's on the phone, it turns out that Michael Douglas has been trying to call her from another pay phone, but getting a busy signal. And he's frustrated. And he walks away and up a hill. And there's this huge set of thou shall not kill posters that he walks by. <laughs> so it's very on the nose. And as he walks, some gangbanger types start following him. There's just two of them. They're, they're hanging out yeah. by their parked car, but they see him go by and they decide to give him a hard time, I guess. Yep. And then we see Prendergast get a call from his wife. Now his wife is played by Tuesday Weld, and I recognize that name. So I looked her up on Wikipedia and stuff. And it's kind of interesting because she was a child actress. And then in the like fifties and sixties, she did a lot of very sexy films. She was really beautiful. And that's how she got her reputation. And she really slowed down her acting as she got older. And so this is one of the few films she did later on. Hmm. And you would never, at this time, you would never know that she had been this really, really, you know, knockout model and actress in her, in her teens and twenties. Cause you know, oh, she's yeah. um, this kind of mentally ill, overweight woman. Mm -hmm. And she really wants Prendergast to come home and she's distraught and she's feeling scared and she wants to make sure He's not doing this retiring and moving just for her. He's up to, but she's upset that he's not home right now. And we, we have this interesting sequence where to calm her down, Duval pulls out, you know, Prendergast pulls out a snow globe of the London Bridge that plays the tune of London Bridge is falling down. And he sings it with her, and this cheers her up. <laughs> and I think, and again, we should come back to this at the end. This relationship is one of the sort of interesting elements of the movie it's not necessarily what you would expect and it has a lot of impact as things go along mm -hmm. and we now see michael douglas he's sitting on some concrete in a park overlooking smoggy la and he's staring at the fog through a hole in his shoe and he has the classifieds with him with several items circled so we start to maybe put together a little more mm -hmm. about what's going on but he tears up the classifieds and puts some paper in his shoe as insulation and then the two gangbangers start circling around him and they're hassling him and they're telling him he's trespassing on their private property. I lived in San Francisco for 25 years and I really enjoyed that time. Although in San Francisco, since I left, has become a place that I'm um, not too interested in. Mm -hmm. But over the years, I encountered many, many, many different attempts to extract money from me while I was sitting at bus stops or rest outside restaurants or whatever. <laughs> and I'm going to share some of those stories as we go along because they're kind of relevant to this movie. And the most disturbing one, which happened when I was pretty young in San Francisco, I'm walking along near a courthouse uh, downtown, but there's not a lot of people nearby. And this really big guy comes up to me. And he starts saying, give me money, give me money, give me money. And he's pushing me backwards, you know, just sort of walking and, and kind of bouncing me backwards. So I'm sort of walking backwards and he just keeps saying, give me money. And he's this really big guy, really intimidating. And I've never had this happen before or since, but, and he clearly knew exactly what he was doing because his constant repetition of give me money in a threatening manner while he was being very intimidating and pushing me backwards, it just 
bypassed my conscious brain and went straight to my lizard brain. And my feeling was I have to save myself right now. And I just reached into my pocket and started shoveling cash over to him. Hmm. And he was like, more, more. And I just kept giving him more until it was out. And then, you know, he eventually left me alone when he believed I didn't have more money and he left. But it was it was a very disturbing experience because yeah. I literally had no control in that moment. And my conscious decision making had been bypassed because I was so scared. Mm -hmm. And I can, in that way, you know, can relate to some of these things in the film about how certain things can set you off, you know? Oh, yeah. So they're telling him that he's trespassing on their private property. And obviously this is a public park, so <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And Michael Douglas says he didn't see any signs like that. <laughs> and they point to some graffiti on the concrete and say that's their sign. And that indicates this is their property and he can't be there. And my understanding is, I mean, that is how a lot of gang stuff works, right? I mean, there are certain neighborhoods that a gang owns and, and they are marked by certain kind of graffiti. And if you know what you're doing, you stay out of them. Mm -hmm. And Michael Douglas, though, decides uh, he's not going to be cautious. <laughs> he says, it says all that. Well, maybe if you wrote it in fucking English, I could fucking understand it. You know, <laughs> which uh, obviously is not endearing him to them. But he does try to reason with him. He says, look, okay, I, I realize I've, you know, trespassed on your territory or your pissing area or whatever he says. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I got my own stuff going on. I don't want a problem here. So I will leave. If you'll just back up a couple feet, give me some space and I will leave your space. And they decide he should pay a toll <laughs> and they want his briefcase. And the meaning of what happens here won't be evident until later. It's one of those things that makes more sense later. But he, or at least becomes more interesting later, mm -hmm. he refuses to give them his briefcase. And one of them pulls out a switchblade. Now, I'm, I'm still thinking of a switchblade as being like what we would see in the 1950s movies, right? Mm -hmm. Where you push a little button and the blade pops out. But well, this is one of those more modern thingies with a bunch of different metal pieces yeah, that swing I, around. I think this is called a butterfly knife. Yeah, that's probably true, yep. So they pull that out and do some of that flipping the metal around to intimidate him. And he makes a speech. Okay. Okay. I, mean, I was willing to mind my own business. I was willing to respect your territory and treat you like a man. But you couldn't leave it alone, could you? You couldn't let a man sit here for five minutes and take a rest on your precious piece of shit hill. Okay. Want my briefcase? I'll get it for you, all right? You can have my briefcase. Here. You want my briefcase? Here's my briefcase! So he pulls out the bat and he beats the crap out of them until they <laughs> run away. He's pretty lucky they didn't have a gun. I think uh, oh, yeah. these days it'd be a little more likely, maybe. He then yells at them that he's going home and he throws the bat at one of them. But as he's walking, he finds that one of them had dropped the butterfly knife. And so he picks it up and kind of plays around with it and figures out how it works and puts it in his pocket. So once again, mm -hmm. Chekhov's butterfly knife. <laughs> <laughs> Chekhov has a lot to do with this uh, movie. <laughs> and since it's Prendergrass's last day, someone shows up to take his gun. <laughs> I'm going to go right back to the Chekhov thing. This is the, one of the first times... I, I obviously not the first time I had a movie, but I realized this is Chekhov's missing gun. <laughs> because obviously the fact that he doesn't have a gun is going to come into play at some point. In the yeah. <laughs> so while he's signing, you know, for giving up the gun, Brendergrass sees a newspaper headline about a cop getting killed in a gang action. 
And then uh, one of the guys, uh, who's a, a Japanese guy, comes in and asks if he'll take a statement, even though it's his last day. They got some guy here who apparently got robbed. You know, it's a Korean grocer. And he's upset, so he's speaking in Korean. And Prendergast asks the Japanese guy what he's saying. And the Japanese guy is like, I'm Japanese. He's Korean. <laughs> I don't speak his language. So, you know. Uh, one of the things that's just clear here is that even though we find out that I think he had been working in this police station for seven and a half years, nobody knows, you know, he doesn't know people. They don't know him. I mean, other than his ex-partner, he's clearly just not somebody who interacted with people. Mm. So anyway, the grocer describes a white man in a white shirt with a tie who busted up his store without stealing anything and then left after buying a soda, you know, and took his bat. And it turns out that, well, since Prendergast does robbery and the only thing the guy took was the bat, which I don't really consider to be robbery, he's got to go talk to somebody else. <laughs> but Prendergast now has a little bit of information that will become important. We see the gangbangers from earlier, but now they're in a car with one of their girlfriends and a couple other dudes. So we got the full gang going here and they're driving around, seeing if they can find Michael Douglas so they can fuck him up. <laughs> And Douglas is at a payphone again, and this time he gets through to Barbara Hershey, and she tells him to stop calling her, and he says it's Adele's birthday, their daughter, and he's coming home. And this is a pretty intense conversation, and it's a conversation where we really, you know, understand another piece of the situation, right, that changes everything. She tells him he can't come home. He insists that he has to come home, and he has to bring his daughter a present, and she says he knows he can't come. This isn't his home anymore. They're divorced. This is where it started to diverge from the movie that I had mm -hmm. seen in my head because I thought he was trying to get home to his happy family, not his estranged right. family. Right. I agree. So it, so kind of what I was referencing earlier, up to now it feels like, oh, here's some, you know, decent white guy is being pushed to the edge because everyone's a jerk in society and, and all this. And he's just trying to get home to his daughter. And then it starts to be, oh, no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's where it gets more interesting for me, right? Mm -hmm. But while he's talking to her, we see that the gangbangers have spotted him on the phone. And the girlfriend in the car is trying to talk them out of it. It's like daylight. And she obviously, you know, doesn't want them to get into trouble and all this. But they, um, out of a, like a gym bag, they pull a bunch of uh, scary looking, probably semi-automatic rifles. You know, they obviously just, mm -hmm. for the movie, pick these things that are look like military rifles. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Hersey is telling Douglas she's going to call the police. And he says he doesn't care. He's coming home. And then the bangers drive by and they shoot up everything on the block and they hit all sorts of people, but they managed not to hit the one guy they were trying to shoot. <laughs> on the one hand, it was kind of ridiculous given how much shooting up they did. On the other hand, those guns are really, really uh, not accurate. <laughs> you know, so it's not, not impossible that he wouldn't have actually gotten hit. Oh yeah. But in the process of doing this drive by, these are not the most competent gang bangers. <laughs> they get into a car accident. And, you know, they're like unconscious and spilled out of the car. And Michael Douglas picks up his briefcase from the payphone, walks calmly past all the carnage of all the people who've been shot and the windows that have been done and everything. Doesn't do anything to help anybody. But he goes to the gangbanger's car and says, you missed. <laughs> then he picks up one of the guns and shoots at one of them. 
but he misses and he finds that amusing. I missed too. <laughs> and then he aims more closely. And, and, you know, one of the guys, uh, the main kind of guy who's harassing him begs him not to shoot him and he shoots him in the leg. And then he tells them they should take some shooting lessons. And he walks away with their duffel bag full of guns in one hand and his briefcase in the other. <laughs> so now, now our hero is fully armed. <laughs> <laughs> and we see Prendergast going into the captain's office. And the captain asks him why he's retiring early. And he wonders if it's because he got wounded and became a coward. And that's why he's now doing a desk job. This is a big theme here about how, you know, he's trying to avoid getting hurt by having a desk job. Mm -hmm. And Prendergast assures him it has nothing to do with that. And the captain gives him what he says up front is an obligatory speech that he has to, asking him to stay on. And Prendergast says, no, he's still leaving. And the captain, who, again, he's worked more for over seven years, asks how his kids are. And he says, I don't have any kids. And the captain's really confused. And he looks at the paperwork and it indicated that, you know, he had a daughter. But it turns out the daughter died. Mm. So both his boss of seven years didn't know his daughter had died. You know, didn't know mm. situation. This is what a warm, you know, place this is to work. <laughs> We're back to Michael Douglas at a bus stop. And he's waiting for a bus. And meanwhile, he's watching a bunch of unemployed people trying to sell veggies or holding signs begging. And most of these people, almost, in fact, I think all of them are minorities. And given how he was recently racist to the Korean guy, he didn't say anything. So we don't know if he's empathizing with them for being on hard times or which is probably the case from what we saw earlier, that he sees these as kind of minority invaders in his country. Mm -hmm. There's also the back of the bus stop bench has a bunch of pictures of George Bush and has this slogan on there of it can't happen here. And it's clearly some sort of political message about Bush and, mm -hmm. and such, or at least gives you a sense of the time this movie was made. And people who are coming off of the bus he's trying to get on keep bumping into Michael Douglas and he's getting annoyed and finally he gets out of lines. He can't take it anymore. And he tries to walk down the street. He's stopped by a construction guy who says they're working on the metro rail. He can't go this way. And again, you know, the construction guy is just doing his job, but he also acts like an asshole. Yeah. So this is one more, one more case, you know. <laughs> Barbara Hershey is talking to a cop in her house. And, it, you know, I think it's pretty clear she's attracted to him. He's like a nice young guy. And she seems to be chatting him up a bit. And he's taking notes on what she's saying because she's concerned because you know he had called her and said he was coming over but it doesn't really go well for her because she got a restraining order and she describes him as having a horrendous temper and being a violent person but then when he asked her for details you know did your did your ex-husband attack your daughter did he attack you and she actually can't really describe any violence that he ever did to her and her daughter and also he she admits he doesn't drink and he doesn't take drugs so the cops are like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I liked here, and I didn't look up to see when Law & Order was going, but it's been going so long it probably did exist by this time. But uh, she does the classic Law & Order thing, and while a cop is talking to her, she's you know doing like something in her kitchen, so she's baking and uh -huh. <laughs> pulling the baking out of the stove and putting it on the top and checking if it's done and all that. And it's just really funny because, you know, Law & Order does it, and a movie like this does it, to give the person something visually interesting to be doing. Mm -hmm. But no person in history has answered their door to cops who were asking them about a murder or something and then said, hey, I'm going to go over here and, you know, make dinner <laughs> or talking. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one of the execution things I'm going to criticize him for is that while the cop's talking to her, he's sweating. And 
it is so obvious that all the sweating in this movie that all the people do that somebody just sprayed their face you know <laughs> uh with a bottle 10 seconds before the take it doesn't look like real sweat at all oh <laughs> 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 well, okay now we see a bunch of shots of downtrodden LA, which, you know, clearly are the things that Douglas is, Michael Douglas is seeing and thinking about. And there's a group of people playing music in the park, these young people. And again, it's just clear that someone sat them down 30 seconds earlier and told them to move their hands up and down because <laughs> <laughs> what they're doing has nothing, no relation to playing the instruments that they have. <laughs> uh, there's a guy with a sign that says, we are dying of AIDS, please help us. And we see a couple of cops hassling people. And this happened a whole bunch in this film. A whole lot of the, you know, third tier side actors are people I really recognize who probably, you know, had some significant careers mm -hmm. after this. So the guy I very much recognize approaches Michael Douglas uh, with a sandwich in his hand and won't leave him alone wants money or something. And he has this big long story about how he drove here from Santa Barbara because his friend was going to repay him. So he thought he'd have money to get back, but his friend didn't pay him. <laughs> and Michael Douglas wants to see his driver's license to prove that he lives in Santa Barbara and, and proof of other things. And, you know, the guy won't show it to him. And this gives me another one of my San Francisco stories because <laughs> one of the things I dealt with, there was this guy who was actually famous enough that he got written up, like, written up in the local independent paper. He would wear a nice... Uh, sports suit and we'd be sitting like you know it might be 10 p.m or something sitting at a bus stop and he would come up and he would just engage in conversation and ask if this was the bus to oakland or whatever and and you know he would slowly ease into the whole discussion and then it would turn out you know he used to be a sports star and then he got injured and he's trying to go see his daughter in oakland but he doesn't have quite enough money for the bus and you know it goes on and on and on and when you would say no he would then go from being really nice and collegial to suddenly calling you a racist and starting yeah. to yell at you. <laughs> but the thing was, he couldn't remember that he had done this same thing to us five times before. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like he did this so much that he'd be coming like, oh, it's that guy again. <laughs> now we got to sit you this whole story. <laughs> the other thing that would happen all the time, especially in the mornings, was people would come by with uh, empty gas cans and have this whole story about how their their car uh, broke down or ran out of gas just down the road and they just needed enough money for gas, you know. And one of the things that would sometimes happen, and this just happened to me and my girlfriend, you know, we I just moved to Cleveland and she came to visit me. And, of course, we went to the Rock and Roll Museum because that's what you got to do if you're in Cleveland. <laughs> and we're coming out afterwards. This guy comes up and he starts into one of these stories. And he, and, but in one of the first things he says, by the way, we're Christians. And then he goes, on. <laughs> this used, when I was younger, this would happen to me in San Francisco too. Right? And it was always really funny to me because nowadays in San Francisco, you'd never say, oh, I'm a Christian in order to get the person to give you money. Right. Mm -hmm. But here on the Midwest, they'll still say that. Right. Because it's <laughs> supposed to kind of mean, well, the story I'm about to tell you is ridiculous, but I'm a Christian. So, you know, I'm OK. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> anyway, those are my long San Francisco stories. <laughs> so this dude that I recognize keeps following Michael Douglas and keeps bugging him. And he claims to be a vet from the Vietnam War, but as Douglas points out, he would have had to have been about 10 or something. <laughs> but in a surprise move, Douglas suddenly agrees to give him his briefcase and says he doesn't need it anymore. And this ties back to earlier where he wouldn't give it to the gangbangers and, you know, got mm -hmm. into this whole fight with them. 
because he wouldn't give up his briefcase. So the dude opens the briefcase and it's completely empty except for a sandwich and an apple. Mm -hmm. And he throws the apple towards Douglas. He walks away and we still don't know why the briefcase is empty, but this is going to become significant later. Yeah. And at the police station, the banger girlfriend is brought into the interrogation room for questioning and Prendergast, you know, goes behind the two-way mirror and listens in. And she describes this white guy attacking the guys with a baseball bat. Uh, and as soon as he hears baseball bat and white guy, Prendergast rushes into the room to get more info from her, you know, based on what he'd heard from the Korean grocer saying that, that he had stolen his bat. Well, no one appreciates Prendergast getting involved and they aren't interested in his theory that there's a white guy in a shirt and tie walking around with a baseball bat causing trouble. (laughs) And uh, he checks a map and correlates, you know, where the grocer was, where the baseball attack in the park happened and where the drive-by shooting happened. And he's seeing this path that Michael Douglas is going on. Then we see Michael Douglas going to a fast food place with a big W. And, you know, there is this L.A. place with the famous big W, Wiener Schnitzel or whatever. But this mm. is, uh, in this movie, it's Whammy Burger. <laughs> and, uh, he's carrying his duffel bag and he comes in and orders a ham and cheese whamlet with wham fries. But it turns out it's like five minutes too late. They're no longer serving breakfast. It's actually he, two minutes too late. <laughs> and... He calls over the manager, who again is another actor I recognize. He's very young here, who confirms that they're no longer making breakfast. And uh, he talks about how the customer is always right, and he's the customer. And he pulls out one of the guns and starts terrorizing everyone in the restaurant. And some people try to leave, and he won't let them leave. He tells everyone to sit down and finish their lunches. And as we saw a bit in the Korean one, and we see here, like, he... He still, he has no idea what he's doing to everyone else, right? I mean, he still feels like he's just reacting to everything reasonably. And the fact that he comes in like with a machine gun and won't let innocent people leave the restaurant and threatens to shoot them if they try, he just doesn't even see this as unreasonable, right? And <laughs> and here we get to points kind of like we talked about when we first realized weird stuff is going on, where my opinion of what's going on and my opinion of the movie changes. But, uh, and on top of everything else, he does not follow good, good gun protocol, and he manages to accidentally fire the gun into the ceiling. And then he's apologizing to everyone, insisting it was an accident, you know, and they're all just terrified. And um, the staff finally agree to serve breakfast to him, but then he changes his mind and decides he really does want lunch. And they bring him the lunch, and he points out that, you know, they brought him this pathetic little thin burger and, and bun and everything. And if you look at the picture in the marketing, it's all plump and... And, and such, which, you know, as we know, yeah, that's pretty much how yeah, it works. Yeah, the bun's all <laughs> thin and squashed. And yeah, it's not, yeah. A, not a good looking burger. <laughs> so then we're with Prendergast and his ex partner, Sandra, at lunch. And as they're sitting down, he mentions the London Bridge and she says, Oh, are you going to England? He says, No, they moved the London Bridge brick by brick to Arizona to the place that he's retiring, which is true. But the overall theme of their conversation, which goes on for a little while, is that she knows he doesn't really want to retire. She knows he doesn't want to move to Arizona, that he's only doing this because his wife wants him to. And the whole, I mean, to use a gross word, right? Clearly the movie is making it clear that everyone just feels that he is pussy whipped, right? That he's just doing whatever his wife wants. And we have already seen that his wife is clearly somewhat unstable. And there's going to be some really interesting things that come from that later. Yeah. And while they're talking, her new partner, who is, you know, 
total asshole. He kind of he reminds me of the asshole in the same the guy the same guy who was in Ghostbusters in Die Hard. Um, oh, you know, Walter the, Peck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, you know, he's not he's not as good an asshole as that, but he's sort of second tier Walter Peck. That's what I will say. <laughs> but he gives you that same kind of vibe, right? You just want to punch him <laughs> as soon as you see him. He interrupts her and says she needs to go because some guy walked into a whammy burger and pulled out a gun and then paid for it and left. And they got to go see what this is about. And I was thinking, talk about, again, a movie almost accidentally talking about the difference in how things are handled in the times. I mean, they take this very casually and they're joking about it. And of course, if this happened today, there would have been three SWAT teams in that place in five <laughs> minutes, right? The idea of a guy coming in and pulling out a machine gun and shooting up the ceiling and that they're, they're just like, oh, isn't this funny? I guess a couple of us will go and see what's up. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that he mentions is, you know, oh, it's weird. You know, after he did all this, he paid for his lunch before he left and that immediately intrigues Prendergast to, because remember the Korean grocer, he paid for his Coke yeah. before he left. So Prendergast asked Sandra to find out what the guy was wearing. Just let him know what the guy was wearing. And then he finishes with Sandra. And again, I, I think this is actually a really interesting line. He says, look, there's something I probably never told you about my wife. And that's that I love her. <laughs> and this ties back to her saying, you're only doing this stuff because your wife wants you to, right? Yeah. And, you know, he has a point, right? I mean, he's got his own stuff to work out and there are things there, but sometimes you do what your partner wants you to do. You know, <laughs> that's part of the <laughs> part of the deal, right? Whether he's making yeah. a reasonable choice or not, we'll have to decide more about that as we go on. And now Michael Douglas is walking by a bank and there's a, a black guy there, yet another one of the actors I totally recognize, but I'm not quite <laughs> sure who he is. And he's holding a sign in front of the bank that says not economically viable. And actually, I thought he was pretty clever. He's, he's yelling out to everyone. And he's like, I tried to get a loan here. And they said, I'm not economically viable. And that's why I can't have a loan. And he rants about this until the cops show up and take him away, which is totally illegal. He's totally allowed to protest and say the stuff he wants here. But it's also totally believable that L.A. cops in the 90s and you know maybe even today would take you away to jail for exercising your <laughs> right to speech. Yeah. And as this is all happening, Douglas is kind of paying attention to it, but he's buying a snow globe with a unicorn in it. So this is our second or third snow globe <laughs> in the movie. And he puts it in the duffel bag. So clearly that's the gift he's going to give to his daughter. And when the black guy in front of the bank is driven away, he leans out the window to Douglas, who he has noticed has kind of been watching him. And he says, remember me. And Douglas nods. He does seem to take it seriously. Then we see Barbara Hershey putting strawberries on that cake for her daughter. And she sees this like split second thing of Michael Douglas um, suddenly appearing in the window and it freaks her out, but it turns out it's actually one of the cops. So it's clear yeah. in the movie, they actually did put Michael Douglas there you know, and then switch it to the cop. <laughs> yeah. And the cop has the similar glasses. So, I mean, it's a, uh, you know, an easy mistake to make, but right. <laughs> And the cops tell her they're leaving as it's clear her ex isn't going to show up. You probably realized it was a bad idea. As we know, that's what exes who are stalkers regularly decide. <laughs> so they're just going to go home. They do suggest she call her lawyer. <laughs> and she's like, I don't have a lawyer. You know, I hired a service. I don't have money for a lawyer. And I said, well, if anything else happens, give us a call. So that's that's reassuring. As um, certain people in the self-defense field say, you're the only one defending yourself. <laughs> <laughs> And we now see Michael Douglas in a phone booth, presumably calling her, but he gets a busy signal. Now, I have to assume they cut something out because this is every other time he's gotten a busy signal, we saw what she was doing on the phone, but we 
don't know that she's on the we don't know any reason she'd be on the phone mm-hmm. right now so i i think they just cut something out that would have said that no maybe she was calling her lawyer that was the cops yeah, that's true me. that's true <laughs> and a guy who's been waiting for the phone is pissed to have to wait and so douglas pulls out there's a machine gun and shoots up the phone booth and says the <laughs> phone is out of order. And one of the things that I, you know, and again, when we're, when we're concluding about this, I'll be interested to get your thoughts on this, but one of the things that is not sympathetic to me about, about him, even regardless of all the stuff he's doing with his wife right, and his family, but just the whole, you know, him being put upon by society is that a lot of the reactions he does like to the person complaining to him that he took up the phone booth and then he, then he shoots up the phone booth. If he had been the person waiting for the phone, he would have been the one pissed off, right? It's not like, I mean, these are all just people going through their their daily lives and he's annoying them, but somehow that's an imposition on him, right? Just like, I mean, going in the, the restaurant and pulling out a gun and shooting into the ceiling and then wondering why everyone is treating him <laughs> like, you know, like he's a bad guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Although in the yeah. case of the phone booth, uh, I mean, how long could he have been in there just calling his wife and getting a busy signal? I mean, you know, two minutes, maybe at most. <laughs> and, and so this, so, so you're in favor of him shooting up the phone booth. Is that <laughs> Yeah, that other guy could have just kept his mouth shut, wait for the guy to leave the phone booth to use the phone booth. No problem. <laughs> or waited a few years and got a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so this podcast is pro-Michael Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now Prendergast's wife calls him again, and she apologizes for her earlier behavior, and she talks about, what was it, Mr.? It wasn't Mr. Poopies. It was Mr. Something, which is their cat, which confuses Prendergast. So he clearly doesn't even know what she calls her cat. And then we get this little, it's almost like a threes company bit, right? Because at the same time, Sandra calls him to tell him what she found at the restaurant. So he's literally switching lines between them. I was kind of waiting for him to say the wrong thing to the wrong person, you know, in a very threes company <laughs> manner, but he doesn't do that. But, um, but he's annoying both of them because he keeps putting each of them on hold. Mm-hmm. So his wife gets upset that he won't come early home early on his last day. And he says he has paperwork to do and she wants him to go shopping. And this is one of those little details that comes back later that I didn't expect to, but I did notice it. She says she wants him to bring boneless, skinless chicken. Well, as you know, I really like to cook and I'm just sitting there going, oh my God, <laughs> you're taking all the flavor, you know, because everybody thinks that the skin is uh, bad for your health, which it's not. But anyway, we won't get into that. So... Yeah, so I noticed this, and I had no idea that the movie was actually going to come back to it. <laughs> and Sandra is being harassed by her new partner and wants her off the phone. I mean, it makes no sense, right? She's like you were kind of saying in the earlier phone call thing. I mean, she's kind of been on the phone like two minutes, and her partner is just really, really harassing her. She's got to get off the phone right now. It doesn't make any sense. But Prendergast tries to convince Sandra that the guy at Whammy Burger is the same guy they've had earlier the Korean grocer and the gangbanger thing and all that. And she points out that, well, he was wearing a white shirt and a tie. He didn't have a bat. He had a gym bag full of guns. And this actually, well, she believes it's an argument and it is kind of an argument for why it's not the same guy. It actually gives Prendergast information. I mean, he immediately mm-hmm. realizes, Oh, where would he have gotten a gym bag full of guns? It would be from the gangbangers who were trying to yeah. shoot him. Right. He then asks his wife to do the shopping for herself. He's starting to stand up for himself a little bit. 
And he says his colleagues might want to throw him a party. And she immediately goes into this, you know, paranoid thing that there'll be some girl with tassels on her nipples and all that. <laughs> and uh, it's clear that, you know, she just has an interesting way of viewing the world. Although, again, this will come back. Yeah, she's not completely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and Sandra then asks him not to leave without saying goodbye to her. And he tells her she goes up against, you know, the, the guy with the bat slash guns to be careful. And that's the end of the first half. Hmm. So defense is walking by a big uh, building with a mural on the wall. It turns out to be an army surplus store. And he still has a hole in the sole of his shoe. So he goes in there. Inside, the clerk is uh, listening to a police scanner and headphones. His name, it turns out, is Nick. And when Defense goes over to browse the hiking boots, Nick comes over to give him assistance. He's talking about the different merits of the types of boots he has. And uh, there are two other guys in there shopping. And Nick doesn't miss an opportunity to raise his voice. Uh, he's talking about the boots, and he'll... He'll say, this is not the kind of boot, or this is the kind of boot that uh, pussies and faggots would wear. Or he might say another kind of boot is good for stomping queers. Uh, but he raises his voice whenever he gets to the slurs for the benefit mm -hmm. of these other two guys who are browsing nearby. So the two guys go to leave. One just wants to get out, but the other one wants to fight. He doesn't want to take all that. I don't want to make any uh, unwarranted assumptions, but uh, he does seem to have correctly identified their sexual orientation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seems. I mean, there, there's nothing, there's no overt, uh, you know, stereotypical. Well, you know, they're stuff. wearing the sort of gym clothes and they're, it's, it's the very kind of, you know, uh, healthy <laughs> version of the yeah. gay community, right? But yeah. it, uh, it, it does, it does seem like they're, uh, they're tacitly, conceding his uh analysis but uh yeah. but one of them wants to fight nick pulls out a pistol which uh, uh discourages them so the angry one who wants to fight he just calls him a fascist and he knocks over a sunglasses display and they leave and it turns out nick might be a little bit of a fascist we'll, we'll come back to that <laughs> yeah i don't want to be judgmental i'm also <laughs> going to say just again in the in the you know our ongoing series of of self defense tips, if someone has pulled a gun and is holding it on you, do not knock over their property and insult them <laughs> on your way out. <laughs> Just leave quietly. <laughs> yeah, probably probably good advice there. Yeah. <laughs> so back at the police station, uh, we see Angie again. She's she's the girlfriend of the. The guys who did the drive-by earlier. She's she's still in the police station. And Prendergast asks her about the gym bag. Now, he doesn't know for certain that they had a gym bag, but he's well, just... And one thing I wanted to say here, because um, one of the characters I respect most in this entire thing comes back to my civil libertarian self-defense thing, right? Hmm. Is Angie's mother is there. Hmm. And Angie's mother keep saying don't talk to them you don't have to talk to them don't mm. say anything <laughs> yeah. and auntie's mother is the most correct person in this entire film <laughs> and her daughter is just like no we had guns there was a bag it had a whole lot of guns i was in the car with him like shut up shut up <laughs> 
So the cat's out of the bag, about the bag full of guns, and uh, he knows that his intuition was correct, that uh, Defens got that bag of guns from the from the car accident. Back in the surplus store, Defens is in the changing room. It's more of a changing closet, I guess, but he's putting on some boots in there, lacing them up. And uh, Prendergast's partner, Sandra, she comes into the store and she's asking about this guy with the white shirt and the necktie and all that, but Nick doesn't squeal on him. And when she even, leaves, like, closes the curtain and all this to make sure she won't see him, you know. Yeah, yeah. And when she leaves, Nick locks up the main door to the shop, and he tells Michael Douglas, there's something I want to show you. And he leads him into a back room, and the back room is full of National Socialist memorabilia. First thing that he hauls out to show defense is an empty can of Zyklon B, which was the gas that the Nazis used uh, during the Holocaust. And he shakes it to show that it's empty, so it was apparently used. And he says, "Think about it." And that's uh, he—that's he, like a sort of re- recurring refrain with him. Think about it. <laughs> Next, he shows defense a rocket launcher, right? Maybe some kind of anti-tank weapon. It's a, it's a long tube that shoots rockets. And, yeah, it's a uh, gift, right? He wants to give yeah. it to him. He's a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turns out that Nick had heard by listening to the police scanner, he heard about what went on at that fast food restaurant. And uh, he, he thinks that Defense is a stand-up guy. He thinks he's a you know, vigilante type. Well, and he assumes he went there because there were must have been a bunch of black people there, right? And he uses yeah. other words for that. So right. he's assuming it was actually, unfortunately, disturbingly, like a recent case where someone went to a grocery store to intentionally do that. Mm-hmm. He's assuming that's what was going on, right? Yeah. And Nick says, we're the same, which uh, <laughs> defense is not happy to hear that. He doesn't want to be the same yeah. as Nick. We have multiple points in this movie where he sort of has to face like, well, what is the difference between you and this <laughs> person? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But here he says, I'm an American. You're a sick asshole. <laughs> he goes to leave, but Nick pulls his gun on him. The same one that the same gun that he pulled on the customers a little earlier. He makes defense lean on a counter, you know, hands on the counter. Nick starts looking through the, the gym bag full of guns he finds the snow globe in there. He calls it faggot shit, and he throws it across the room, and it smashes. And uh, Defense actually cries out, no! You know, that's his daughter's birthday present. So Nick puts a handcuff on one of Defense's wrists, but he won't hand him the other hand. He says it's on account of gravity. He says he'll fall down as he moves his hand. Hence the movie title. (laughs) We also have this weird theme in here where Nick is bending him over this table and spreading his legs and continually talking to him about how when he goes to prison, he's going to get raped, et cetera. And you're kind of like, it's not clear because we don't get that far, but is he actually going to do that? You know? (laughs) Yeah, it definitely builds up that, uh, that, that wondering, but, uh, but we never, we never get to find out exactly what he would have done. Because when Nick kicks Defense's feet out from underneath him and he falls down, as he said he would, while he's down on the floor, Defense takes out that butterfly knife that he t- 
took from the gangster earlier, and he stabs Neck in the shoulder real deeply. It goes all the way into the hilt. Um, Again, this is kind of similar to that recent uh, New York, uh, his name is Alba case where he stabbed a guy. One of the things that happened here that ties back to multiple movies we've watched, so it's interesting how common this theme is, is that when he get when he falls down, he breaks one of his glasses, right? There's a there's a crack in the glass. Mm, yeah. And remember, Bonnie and Clyde, one of his lenses comes out. You know, like <laughs> we have these repeated things where whenever something happens to your glasses or your eyes, you know, it all it's this indicator of you disintegrating or something about to bad a bad is about to happen to you. you no, know? yeah. 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 And he goes through the entire rest of the movie with that crack in his glasses, right? <laughs> While Nick is recovering, he even, he pulls the knife out of his shoulder, which I, I guess sometimes if, if you get stabbed deeply, sometimes it's better to leave it in in yeah, case yeah, you, yeah. you're uncorking something that you want it to stay corked. <laughs> yep, exactly. So Nick pulls the blade out and uh, he makes some remark about how this isn't one of my, <laughs> it seems kind of, <laughs> seems kind of dazed. And while he's recovering. The defense shoots him several times, takes him out of the picture. An interesting detail. I don't know if this is an actual historical prop, but it's a Santa Claus outfit with a uh, swastika armband on it. So I'm wondering if that might be supposed to be like, you know, a Santa Claus from Nazi Germany or something. Yeah, he has a lot of swastikas in this place. Oh, yeah. And also, at this point, and again, this ties into other movies, not necessarily that we've seen, but uh, at this point, Defense switches to sort of green um, military gear. Yeah, it looked more black to me, but yeah. It also happened to Taxi Driver. There's some point where he starts wearing clothing like that. So, again, I think it's yeah. just one of those little symbolic things sometimes when people are going through this process, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's got a new got a new outfit. He's no longer the clean-cut defense contractor guy. He's now the clean-cut. Well, and also, I mean, this is the first time that he's... I mean, up to now, you could argue some kind of self-defense. You know, not really with the guys in the car, but still, they mm. had tried to kill him. So... This is the first time he has simply decided to kill somebody. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the guy didn't say he was going to kill him. He said he was going to turn him into the cops. Yeah. So he chose to kill him. And at that point, his glasses break and he changes clothing. Yeah. So I think this is the, like, yeah, here's where he really flips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although the guy, uh, the guy did give him cause. First, he pulls a gun on him and he handcuffs him and then he, uh, well, oh, no, first of all, he smashed the snow globe. That was the bad part. <laughs> I'm not saying he didn't have justification. I'm just saying it's, you know, at least from what we saw, Nick was not intending to kill him. So, And he made yeah. the choice to kill Nick. And it's the first time he truly made the choice to kill somebody he really didn't have to kill. Yeah. So back at the police station, uh, Prendergast is still talking about the gym bag, and the other cops aren't very interested. <laughs> Yeah, again, it would be unrealistic if it wasn't L.A. I mean, these are historically about the worst cops on the planet. So him, you know, giving them all this evidence, they're like, ah, we don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So the the other cops and Prendergast, they get to the captain's office, the captain who was giving him the little speech earlier about to sure you don't want to stay on the force and all that. Now the captain, uh, he dismisses the other cops and he takes a moment to tell, uh, Prendergast that he doesn't like him because he doesn't curse. 
<laughs> and he also doesn't like him because he doesn't have the nerve to get out on the street. And the captain seems sincere here. You know, I, I, for at first I thought this was just sort of, you know, your usual ball busting, you know, but the, I think the captain really meant it. He just doesn't like Prendergast and doesn't respect him because he, he went to the desk job instead of working out on the street. So after, after talking to the captain, Prendergast talks to Sandra, his partner, her former partner. He took the desk job, he says, to placate his wife. He got home one night late, and she was up worried that he'd been killed, and she thought he was a ghost. So she's... He said he had to, like, chase her through the house, you know? Yeah. And I, and I feel like um, the interesting thing about his relationship with his wife is that I know from personal experience, and, you know, you may have encountered someone like this. I mean, all this is very realistic. You know, the overly sensitive person who has these fantasies going through their head, um, mm -hmm. all the time and wants to kind of control your life to be, you know, et cetera. I mean, I, mm -hmm. it's all very realistic to me. Oh yeah. It's plausible the way that a uh, Prendergast's wife, uh, we don't see a whole lot of her. We see just a few quick scenes with her, but, um, she, she comes across as a very plausible character. Yeah. And you could, you could see how he might love her and at the same time be occasionally annoyed with her right and as we'll see later though i mean the depths of how disturbed she is might be might be pretty bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah so sandra wants to go with prendergast to investigate this gym bag so off they go at the ex-wife's house elizabeth's uh, she answers the phone and it's defense calling he's in his new outfit all black that he got from the surplus store he says that she's past the point of no return, and he elaborates on that. He talks about some astronauts who had to go around the moon so that they could sort of slingshot back home. And when they did that, they lost contact with Earth for a while. Defense says that's him, you know, on the other side of the moon, uh, mm -hmm. out of contact with everyone. For anyone not familiar, by the way, the movie Apollo 11 is about that, and it's a great movie, but I've also heard there's a documentary that's really good that came out recently that I'm planning to watch about that story. So it is pretty amazing because, yeah. you know, they had a failure. They're literally at the moon, and they had to come back to Earth and survive, and everyone assumed they would die, and, you know, mm -hmm. it turned out well. It was a pretty amazing story. So. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. And then uh, defense uh, hits a bit of a dark note. Uh, he just mentions that in certain South American countries, it's still legal to kill your wife if she insults you. She gets this look on her face because I think she realizes by, you know, I guess by divorcing him, et cetera. I mean, obviously, she fits into that definition as he's doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Predergast and Sandra, they arrive at the Korean guy's store. They don't even get up to the store before Prendergast looks around and he notices the billboard that he had seen from the highway at the very beginning of the movie. It was a, I'm tempted to say it was Hawaiian Tropic. It was like a swimsuit advertisement and it was memorable because it had, somebody had drawn a little cartoon of somebody peering out of the woman's cleavage on the billboard which when i can't i don't know what it means about him but when, at the very beginning of the movie when we saw prendergast see that billboard he smiled so something mm. about that kind of you know 10 year old uh, sex humor appealed to <laughs> him <laughs> oh yeah that was cute 
<laughs> it was memorable. So having seen that billboard, he thinks, well, the highway must be near here. So he runs into the foliage and up a hill, and sure enough, he sees the highway. And that triggers his memory of seeing the personalized license plate on the car that said D-Fens. So now he's got the license plate. You know, he he puts it together that this that abandoned car must have been the source of this guy walking around causing trouble. Yeah, and it's kind of the, the odd way that the movie decides that this guy's name is Defense, right? <laughs> he keeps saying, it's, again, it's kind of weird uh, because he's so, Prendergast is so excited and he, he's yelling Defense and the Korean grocer is outside his grocery and he points at him and yells Defense and like, the guy has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> we quickly cut to Elizabeth's house. Uh, another cop arrives and that's all there is to that scene. She's just... well. Uh, I mean, she, again, is another kind of jerk sort of like defense is running into, right? I mean, she's clearly doesn't really care what's happening. She's just like, well, I got to go. And you know, yeah, I mean, well, this is when she's arriving. She'll, uh, she'll mm. be departing. Okay. Sorry. I don't, I didn't mean to jump on you. Jump <laughs> no, on you there. So okay. let's go there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a very quick, I mean, they could have just taken that scene out because it's like 10 seconds of just the cop showing yeah sometimes they get caught into this whole thing of well we've got to show this character and then we got to show this character and then we got to show this character <laughs> and and you know yeah i think sometimes it's not necessary like we can figure it out <laughs> yeah so we see a very congested intersection with flagmen and a construction site cars are being diverted into the other lane and it's not clear where they're ending up like it looks like it might be one of those things where it's one direction with two lanes has been turned into a two-lane road with two different directions but but it's not clear exactly how uh, how it all works out it's just clear that it's not working very well there's a single construction worker lounging around at this end of the site and he's pretty snotty as is everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There aren't, there are too many really likable people in the movie and defense to me, his, his outfit, it's all black and it looks a lot like Michael Myers's outfit to me, <laughs> but defense thinks of these construction workers are sandbagging. Uh, he wants this guy to admit there's nothing wrong with the street. He, he thinks they're padding their budget, you know, use it or lose it. Yeah, and and this is the kind of thing that, and because I've seen this kind of stuff on Twitter and other things, right? And and like I know I've worked in industry and I've worked in whatever, and I know how things work. And he's like, well, three days ago this street was fine. How could there be anything wrong with that? And I'm like, that's not how it works. And that's not, you know, like as the guy says, well, there's some sewage problem or whatever. But anyway, mm -hmm. I just yeah, it, it's that whole idea of like, oh, you're just you know, breaking up this entire street to screw everyone over and uh, pad your budget. And it's like, okay, there are many, many budget issues with government programs. I will admit that, but <laughs> I don't think there's too many cases of them ripping up entire streets, you know, to pretend that they're doing work. But anyway, <laughs> he gets very conspiratorial at this point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh, I will say that, uh, outside my office there, there's been, uh, there's like a 500 foot strip of street that's been under construction since last November and it's still in progress. So I, I can't help thinking that in the olden <laughs> days it would have gotten finished a little sooner, but, uh, <laughs> well, now you know what to do about it. <laughs> yeah, I guess. 
<laughs> so the worker gets a glimpse of the gun that defends is tucked into his waist. And the worker admits there's nothing wrong with the street. So defense says, I'll give you something to fix. And he pulls out his rocket launcher from the surplus store. And at this point, a small group of helpful kids on bikes stops by. One, uh, one of them knows how to use the launcher, launcher because he saw it on TV. So he, uh, he gives defense step-by-step instructions to get the launcher <laughs> to fire. Just as he did at the burger shop, he has terrible trigger discipline. He fires the rocket prematurely, and fortunately, where the worker had been sitting, there's a tunnel underground, uh, an opening in the ground. And the rocket shoots into the tunnel opening, and uh, we can see that this, uh, the tunnel follows a line of these uh, you know, metal plates covering it that uh, they go on for probably a couple hundred yards. The rocket, they think for a moment it might have been a dud because seconds go by and nothing happens. But turns out the rocket traveled the whole length of that covered trench and then it blows up at the other end near a group of a dozen or so construction workers. Uh, looks like none of them are harmed, but it's a big surprise for them. <laughs> and the physics here make no sense, right? Because he's doing an angle down into this tunnel. But the rocket somehow travels horizontally for 200 feet. It's like it was a oh, yeah. radio-controlled missile or something. But yeah, <laughs> well, I could I could see it deflecting off the floor and you know, going <laughs> bouncing through a tunnel. But the thing is, I would I would have expected the rocket would have a pressure-sensitive head on it. So the first right. time it ran into something, it would go off. I would think, unless it's like some safety thing where it won't go off until it's you know, five seconds after it's launched. <laughs> Probably wouldn't yeah. be a bad idea. Uh, it's really just that they wanted it to go to a certain place. Yeah. <laughs> Prendergast and his partner, Sandra, they uh, they arrive at a home we haven't seen. Turns out this is the home of Defense's mother. Who's also an actress I've seen many times. So yeah. Ah, okay. Uh, in the living room, they've got a shrine to Defense's father. He was in the military. They've got pictures of him in uniform and some various certificates and you know, different memorabilia from his career. The mother has a display stand uh, with a glass menagerie on it. Just a bunch of little, little glass miniature animals you know there's a giraffe and a skunk and you know all that kind of stuff well, and, and obviously we'll get back to this more but uh i if you're familiar with it, there's a very famous play called the glass menagerie and i right. and i i have to assume this was a reference to that yeah yeah could be i i haven't seen the glass menagerie so i don't know what what themes might be involved here but uh but it could be some kind of a reference yeah so Prendergast, he sets the mother at ease uh, about their visit in general by talking to her about her little menagerie. And this is something we, uh, he, he does a few times throughout the movie. You know, he's got that little gift of gab to set yeah. people at ease. So that's what he does here. Meanwhile, Defense is crawling over a tall iron fence with, uh, it's got the, the spikes on top to prevent you from crawling over it, but that doesn't deter him at all. He crawls over the fence into a private golf course. It's a country club. And we see two golfers. One of them swings and 
At least in the initial glimpse, he bears a resemblance to Judge Smales from Caddyshack, and that that may be <laughs> intentional, I'm not sure. But this guy who looks like Judge Smales turns out to be the more laid back of the two golfers. The other one starts yelling at defense. He's just walking up the fairway in his black outfit with his gym bag. Yeah, and he's very discriminatory, right? Because the other guy is like, well, maybe he's just someone who works here. And hmm. and he's like, well, if so, he's not in the proper costume, you know, you know, whatever. He's just oh, not yeah. going to put up with it, right? I mean, he's going to be a real jerk. Like, who are you? You know, you're not wearing the right thing. You shouldn't be on my golf course, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just in keeping with the movie's general theme of every random stranger is a complete dickhead. So the guy, defense keeps walking closer to these golfers. So the angry one, he yells for twice and he whacks a ball right towards defense. And it comes fairly close to him. It goes by him, but it's comes close enough that he has to sort of duck or feels like he has to duck. And defense says, fine. And he pulls out a shotgun. <laughs> So he shoots their golf cart. It's It's got a parking brake on on the hill. After he pulls out the shotgun, he does this little speech about how, you know, they're taking up all this space with their their golf thing when really they should have, you know, people, families out there having picnics and all this, right? It should be the common people's space, not these rich people's golf course, right? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, I think he even suggests making it into a petting zoo. <laughs> and I, to me, this is a little bit like we discussed in Bonnie and Clyde, right? It's like, yeah, all of this sort of um, common man stuff comes out when it's convenient, but <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's really his, you know, driving force. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is a little bit uh, facile, <laughs> as we'll see right after this. <laughs> <laughs> So he shoots their golf cart with a shotgun that releases the parking brake and it rolls down the hill towards the, uh, the pond or the water hazard down at the bottom of the hill. And this angry guy, uh, he collapses. Turns out that he needs his heart pills. He's worked himself into vexation. Unfortunately, the heart pills are in the golf cart and the golf cart just rolled into the pond. Yeah. And defense takes great delight in this, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, isn't that too bad? I could have helped you, but the pills are there. I can't get to them. Now you're going to die. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's just, you know, I, any sympathy you could have had for this guy is, is evaporating quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So back at uh, defense's house, he has a very, very tidy room. His mom says that he cleans his own room. Uh, and he works at Notech, a defense contractor. Prendergast starts rummaging through drawers and he finds a photo of Defense and his wife Elizabeth, now ex-wife, and their daughter Adele. Defense's mom is worried because he's been acting strange. He's he's quiet and surly at dinner. He sits there and stares without talking. You know, she's uh, she's nervous that he's not doing well. And it turns out his name is William Foster. He likes to be called Bill, she says. Sandra comes back into the room. She went off and called no tech and, uh, it turns out Bill was fired over a month ago. And his mom asks, where's he been going every day? <laughs> and, and this, uh, one of the things that I was talking about earlier on, you know, this then now, if you think back to the very beginning of the movie, 
everything we were watching had a slightly different meaning than what we might have thought, right? Mm -hmm. He's in a traffic jam going to work. No, actually, he's been fired. Yeah. He's going home. No, actually, it's his ex-wife. It's not his home, right? I mean, just that <laughs> all of these things that seem to be his story turn out not to be. Right. Also, the importance of the briefcase, right? That's his work briefcase. He mm -hmm. actually defies the gangbangers and won't give them his briefcase. But there's nothing in there but his lunch because he's not going to work. Right. And so I, I, so I do think this is one of the more interesting things about the film that this point reveals, right? It's kind of the, uh, you know, kind of the surprise plot point of the film. <laughs> Once Defense's mom has wondered, where has he been going every day? I think she also asks, uh, where is he eating lunch? <laughs> um, yeah, that was kind of funny because it was sort of like, wait, if I'm not making lunch, or you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, apparently it's been Whamburger or whatever. Right? Yeah, <laughs> he had a lot of familiarity with their with their uh, cuisines. <laughs> so then we see uh, in a rather luxurious backyard, we see a bag, uh, the gym bag, come flying over the wall, and Defense follows it. He just flops onto the ground. Uh, and there's, but he's very upset. Right? Yes. He's, he's hurt his hand on the, yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's, he, there's barbed wire at the top of this fence and he cut himself on it and he, he's brandishing his shotgun as he walks towards this family by a pool in the backyard. It's a very big house and nice mansion. Uh, there's two adults and two little girls. Defense is walking towards them with a bloody hand and a shotgun. And he's complaining about the barbed wire on the fence. And the guy by the pool explains that he's the caretaker. This is actually a doctor's house. Yeah, and he kind of says, oh, please don't tell anyone. And, and what you kind of figure out is probably the um, the person who owns the house is not there. And this family whose father works there sometimes decided they would go and have a, you know, a picnic right. or a barbecue there. But obviously they're not technically supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, as he's explaining what's going on, or as they're figuring out what's going on, the uh, sounds of cop cars, we hear them in the distance, and we yeah. hear some arriving with their doors shutting. Actually, I'm not even sure if they're cop cars or if there's a security for the place, right? Because I think they've well, been there, watching the cameras and everything. It could be. There are some actual sirens, I thought. Mm. But uh, well, maybe security cars have sirens, too. I don't know. Anyway, at the at these sounds, <clears throat> defense leads the family into it's hard to tell what it is. It almost looks like a stone grotto or something. Yeah, I, th I think it's just like a little tool shed kind of place, right? Or maybe yeah. somewhere where you get dressed or undressed for the um, the pool. You yeah. Know, that kind of thing. yeah, yeah, that's probably what it is. So it comes out that the doctor who owns the house is a plastic surgeon. Defense says, "I guess I'm in the wrong racket." <laughs> Yeah, plastic surgeons are also assholes, apparently, <laughs> because they own big houses. Yeah. So, Defense tells this family that he lost his job. He says, I'm not economically viable. So, he's quoting <laughs> the sign of the guy protesting the bank earlier. He's got a little girl, one of the little girls, he's holding her next to him, almost like a, like a hostage. He doesn't have a weapon on well, her. 
And this is one of those points we'll see, like, he thinks he's just talking to this family and having a nice interaction with them. He just totally doesn't see that they're terrified and that this girl doesn't want to be next to him and that they're Mm -hmm. worried about that he's going to kill them or something. He just, he doesn't see any of this, right? Yeah. He, he looks down and he sees blood and he's instantly horrified because he's afraid he's accidentally hurt this girl in some way. And so he pushes her away and he says, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't hurt you. And, uh, the, the caretaker though, he actually is pretty reasonable. One of the, one of the more likable people in the movie, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's one of the no, only non-assholes in the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He reminds defense that he cut his hand on the barbed wire crawling over the fence. Um, and then the caretaker says, take me with you. And, and what he's trying to do is make sure that it's him. If he's going to take a hostage, right. you know, take me, don't yeah. take me. Yeah. And that request again, totally confuses defense. Cause he's like, Oh, we're just having this conversation. Right. He doesn't understand that he's kidnapped this family. Right. And that his father is now trying to protect his family and, and he has to process that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So defense insists that he doesn't want to hurt this family. He is family of his own, he says, and it's his little girl's birthday. And he starts fantasizing. And the first time I watched through the movie, I didn't really catch this, but I, when I went through again to take notes, I saw it in a different light. Uh, he's talking about what he had envisioned for the day. You know, he says his daughter would go out and play outside. Well, he, he talked with his, with his wife and she held his hand and we'd talk about grown up things. Well, he, you know, whether or not she was ever going to hold his hand, uh, <laughs> don't know, but, but what he envisioned next was then when it got dark, we'd all go to sleep together. We'd sleep together in the dark. And, uh, the first time I saw this, I thought, well, doesn't seem likely, but, uh, you know, whatever, but, uh, the second viewing, um, you could, you could interpret this considerably more ominously than mm-hmm. I originally did, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to that eventually. I hadn't interpreted it that way, but yeah, you know, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so back at Elizabeth's place, that, that other cop that showed up earlier, uh, she's a redheaded female cop. And she's leaving, uh, and as you said, she wasn't terribly helpful. She's convinced that defense is just trying to put a scare in Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, and, and her advice to her to help her out is next time there's a, a thing on the ballot to, you know, reduce the police hours on the street, vote no. It's like, great, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll help a lot when my ex-husband comes to terrify me and my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) So at the police station, uh, Sandra is searching for Elizabeth on the computers. Uh, She hasn't found anything yet. Prendergast tells her that the guy from the surplus store was murdered. Uh, That's pretty shaking to her, right? Because she was at that store and she interacted with him and realized she must have, you know, missed the fact that the guy was there. And yeah. Right. So Elizabeth's phone rings and, uh, defense tells her that they turned their ice cream parlor, the, an ice cream parlor they used to go to, apparently they turned it into some new age thing. Yeah. And I thought this was interesting because again, there's a, there's a subtle thing here, which is he hasn't been here in a while Mm -hmm. because presumably this would have happened a while ago. 
and he doesn't know it. So, yeah, you know, his whole familiarity with her and the family, I mean, they must have been divorced for a little while by now. Right. By mentioning this to Elizabeth, that signals to her that he's just right around the corner. Right. And it's not like he's trying to scare her. I literally think he just saw this change and was like, oh, I'm going to call her and tell her that. He didn't think about the fact that this would tell her he was right next to her, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not. Yeah. I mean, if he's a block from the house, it makes you wonder why he would pause to call. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there there could be various reasons for him calling. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, she takes her daughter and flees the house because he's he's just a block away now. And she does it in a smart way, right? She goes in the back, mm-hmm. goes out the back door, waits till he comes in, and then goes through the front yard. Right, right. right. He, yeah. he runs to the house and goes in through the front door. And as soon as the front door closes, they duck out of the backyard and run across the front lawn and out towards the beach. And I think the practicality you see there will become important in a little bit, right? It's, I mean, she does think under pressure. Yeah. So back at the police station, Prendergast says defense gave an old geezer a heart attack and he accosted the family next door to the country club. Sandra also found Elizabeth's number in, uh, in Venice, which is Venice, California. Venice, Although yeah. right before she says Venice, Pendergast looks at the map and he sort of writes his arrow on it and he says, don't tell me it's Venice, right? Because he's been <laughs> following him all through the day, right? It's again yeah. another classic movie thing where you're on a trip that takes like a day and, you know, you're going from one end to the other. Yeah. <laughs> so now Defense is in Elizabeth's living room watching home videos. And uh, first, first one is him giving Adele a puppy. And the grown dog is uh, sitting down right next to him on the, you know, next to the couch, and uh, he pets it. The phone rings, but he doesn't answer it. And back at the police station, we see that the caller was Prendergast. His wife calls Prendergast's wife, and she's up in arms because the cat scratched her and she's bleeding to death. Yeah, I, again, I'm going to say this is. In my experience, this is realistic for this kind of person, right? I mean, she wants Mm. her husband to come home. Her cat probably did scratch her, but she's literally then turning this into this huge medical situation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that she overemphasizes that she's bleeding to death, you know, it just, it it is interesting. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 And it's not like uh, if she has a cat, this probably isn't her first first rodeo getting (laughs) scratched. So she starts to get testy. She starts yelling at her husband over the phone and he tells her to shut up. He actually, (laughs) uh, he actually stands up and, uh, tells her to get a grip. He also insists that when he gets home, there's going to be dinner cooked for him and she's going to cook the chicken with the skin on it. (laughs) This is when I knew he was the good guy. (laughs) (laughs) The skin has all the taste and all the vitamins and everything. Eat your damn skin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Prendergast and Sandra, they're going to go leave the station and check out Elizabeth's place, but there's a surprise party. It's not a bad, not a bad surprise party. They got little plastic cowboy hats for everybody and they 
They got him a cake. They couldn't fit his whole name on it. So it says Salon Prenderg. <laughs> and they even brought in Miss Susie, who is delivering a stripogram. Yeah. So, so his wife was right all along. She was 100% <laughs> right. She, she knew the police better than, uh, better than her husband did. And one thing I think is interesting about his reactions here is on the one hand, he wants to get out of there, right? Cause they're, they're doing this case, but he also does really seem to enjoy and appreciate the individual parts. Like he laughs and claps and yeah, his, you know, yeah, it's not, it's yeah. not like he's offended by, by any of this. But. Yeah. He's not, he's not real antsy and annoyed and all that. He's just, uh, you know, under other circumstances, he'd like to stick around and participate probably. But uh, he says, thanks, but he has to leave. And one of the cops says, afraid of women, too. And another cop says, and I think this is the the ex-partner's new partner. Right. Of course. You know, <laughs> what's his name? Oh, Walter Peck. Yeah, Walter Peck. The, official, <laughs> the, the third, uh, as I said, third-rate Walter Peck. Yes. <laughs> now, this guy, when the other cop says, afraid of women, too, this guy says, I don't blame him. You ever met his wife? And there's a there's a hush that falls over the department because, uh, <laughs> well, that's the kind of hush that falls when you insult somebody's mm. wife. So Prendergast punches the new partner uh, into the cake. <laughs> he leaves a big uh, trough down the middle of it. Knowing movies, here's what I'm thinking when I see this. It's like they had to have a whole bunch of cakes available or at least three, if not more. And sometimes insurance requires it because you're going to have to do the scene more than once. And they destroyed this cake, right? And that also means you're going to have cake all over his suit. So you either have to have uh, a suit yeah. or you have to watch it. I'm just saying that's, you know, so we watch something like that and it takes five seconds. The reality is it takes hours right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to do that one shot because of all those things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so meanwhile, as he's leaving and Sanders leaving, um, we get to see more home movies with, uh, with Bill, Elizabeth Slipper. This time in the home movie, uh, Adele, the young kid, she's whiny and uncooperative. Bill is insistent. Uh, he's got a rocking horse that he wants her to ride. Yeah, I think this is key to the movie, right? Because mm -hmm. up to now, I mean, this is a really important point, which is he has gotten his daughter this rocking horse. And he is filming this on, on early video, right? This would have been like a big video camera instead of using your phone. Yeah, And he wants his delighted daughter to get on his gift but she is upset it might be that it's too high off the ground you know she can barely fit her legs around it maybe it's uncomfortable mm -hmm. so she doesn't want to do it and this is the point where he's not mad at his wife he's mad at his daughter yeah. because his whatever she is like probably three-year-old daughter mm -hmm. is not giving him the perfect reactions he wants while he videotapes this right and I think this, we, we just get a huge insight at this point into him and why she had to divorce him and, and his whole thing about his daughter, but it's not really about his daughter. It's really about him. And, you know, I, I think there's just a lot here. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, in the subtitles, it's not really easy to hear watching the show, but in the subtitles, you hear Elizabeth saying, you know, don't force her, don't push her, no. Trying to right. trying to make him back off a little, but he's not doing it. Yeah, I got her this gift. She needs to do this, right? Yeah. yeah. 
And so uh, Elizabeth looks unhappy in this video. And then uh, the scene changes, and we hear him saying, it's the pier, it's your favorite place, because she, she and uh, Adele still don't look happy, even though they're at the pier now, which is their favorite place. And he looks out the window, and that very pier is right outside. Yeah. And then he realizes, well, we, we assume that this is where he realizes that They've probably gone to the pier. Yep. So a car pulls up outside the building, and we hear, we hear the squealing squealing brakes. You know, probably not something you generally want to do if you're trying to get the drop on somebody. He hears the car pull up. Sandra goes around the back of the house while Prendergast goes through the front. And uh, she hasn't been around the back for more than a couple seconds when we hear a gunshot. So... Prendergast runs through the house. There's nobody in there. Well, the first thing he does, right, he reaches for his gun, and now we go back to Chekhov's missing gun, uh, because, of course, yeah. they took the gun away from him earlier. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's got his empty holster there at his side. Right. He's not doing a whole lot of good. But I think, you know, really important point here, people have been calling him a coward all throughout because he took the desk job after he got injured. But he goes into that house. Right. So, you know, without a gun. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I never, I never got the impression through this that he was a coward. No, but, but everyone mean, was calling him. Yeah. That. Yeah. Every, 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 everyone thought he was, but he never, if you watch him, it, but then again, we see throughout the movie, nobody ever watches him. They just, uh, <laughs> they're all off in their own little, little foils. Yep. Yep. So he gets to the back. Sandra's lying there in the lawn. She's been shot in her side, but she's conscious and coherent. He takes her gun. He tells the neighbors to call 911. He runs off towards the beach. Yeah, it's a little weird to me that he leaves her there sort of bleeding. She's like, I'm okay, but it's like her abdomen. I mean, I know. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm actually not sure what the proper protocol is here. Because on the one hand, your partner has potentially a life-threatening wound on the other hand you have a guy with a clear history of killing people running around with <laughs> yeah a gun. so what are you gonna do you know yeah yeah well she's putting pressure on it there's probably not much <laughs> more as long as she's able to put pressure on it but... yeah <laughs> so bill or defends he runs to the pier and it's a long long pier and at the end of it there's this little round area that just hasn't like a concession stand, a little ice cream stand, Dairy Queen type place there. So he's running down the pier, and Adele sees him coming, and she says, Daddy, Mommy, look. So Bill gets up there, and he hugs Elizabeth. She asks him to leave them alone. He says, this, this ring a bell till death do us part. Yeah, this is one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, this isn't just someone who had a bad day. This is... <laughs> Someone is just not right. (laughs) And also, when he says that, you know where things are supposed to go from here, right? Mm -hmm. Bill brandishes his pistol and chases off the other people who are out here at the end of the pier. He sets it down on the ground, the pistol he sets on the ground, and he talks to Adele and says, how did you get so big? Elizabeth says, you need help. You're sick. Bill replies, take a walk around this town, as he's been doing all day today. That's sick. Hmm. And uh, 
A voice comes from somewhere else nearby. It's Prendergast, and he says, You ain't kidding. And somehow he snuck up to the concession stand and got a bucket of popcorn. <laughs> popcorn I, I, I Actually, I really like this scene, but also it, it relies on the fact that Bill had seen the woman, Sandra, uh, before, a couple times before, so he knew she, who she was, but he had not seen mm. Prendergast. But I'm also going to guess here, before we get into it, I think the whole reason Robert Duvall did this film is that he could do this scene. Mm, could be, yeah. this is by far his best scene in the whole film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could believe that. So Prendergast says he used to fish right here, right off this pier. But the fish is poisonous, he says, and if you swim, you'll get an infection. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's trying to relate to the whole, you know, oh, life is treating me bad and society is terrible, right? He's, you know, he's, he, he understands how he needs to relate to this guy. Yeah, he, he's doing his folksy, chatty stuff again, you know, just as he calmed down, defends his mom earlier by admiring her glass animals. Well, and actually, I hadn't thought about this, but that's a really good point, because you think about he he calmed down his wife by singing the London Bridge thing, he calmed down, defends his mother, and now he's calming down defense. So he does, right. that's a really interesting pattern. He does throughout the show, there's various occasions, or, or like when he gets Angie to talk to him, when she didn't have to, and his mom was even advising her against it. Hmm. Although he doesn't really do a lot of patter there. He just kind of instantly <laughs> wins her over. Guest starts talking about his daughter, and he lost her to infant death syndrome when she was two. He gives the Dallas popcorn bucket. Bill sets his pistol down on the ground again momentarily because Adele's offering him some popcorn to eat. And I think uh, before he does that, he flashes his gun to... Barbara Hershey or Elizabeth, so she knows what he's doing. Mm, okay. Yeah, I, I did see a little brief scene of a gun, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, and, and how he would flash it to her and not to her ex-husband, I don't know. But anyway, you know, he does kind of make it clear, like, this is what's going on, right? <laughs> yeah. So while Bill has got the police, got the pistol set down on the ground, and he's distracted by the popcorn bucket, a police car pulls up at the uh, end of the pier that makes little bleeping siren noises. And Bill looks over at it, looks down the pier at it. And while he's distracted, Elizabeth kicks the gun away, the one that Bill had set down on the ground. Which I really appreciated because, you know, every, whenever he sets that gun down, that's what you're thinking. You should do this. And the <laughs> fact that she does shows, you know, she has some agency. She does the smart thing. Right. And it was a good tactic because uh, it gives her a chance to run away with Adele while Prendergast. Well, she also grabs the gun and throws it in the water after that, right? So, I mean, she really makes sure it's out of the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he chases her around the concrete plaza at the end of the pier a little bit. Finally, uh, I think uh, Prendergast kind of, uh, you know, Bill can't quite catch up with her. And then Prendergast stands there to give her and Adele a chance to run away. Prendergast's covering Bill with his gun. He says, I think you know exactly what you were going to do. You were going to kill your wife and child. Yeah, and I guess, I, you know, that the interesting point you made that comes back to him talking about the darkness or how they were going to sleep in the dark, you know. Right. Yeah. 
And and I didn't I didn't make that connection until you said that, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I didn't notice it till the I was watching it again to take the notes. So <laughs> it's uh I mean and and once I guess I went through most of the movie not thinking that that was what his plan was, even though it in retrospect well, it does seem very likely that's exactly what he wanted to do. This is actually very realistic. All the time, people get in these situations say, well, I brought this gun to my ex-wife. I was just trying to scare her. I wasn't going to shoot her. And I think they believe that. Yeah. But I think as we're saying here, there's zero chance that's what was going to happen. Like there's one part of their brain that knows where this is going to go, but their conscious brain is kind of lying to them. Like, I'm just trying to get back to my daughter and wife. And if I need to use my gun to scare them to make that happen, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So Bill, Bill says, I'm the bad guy. How'd that happen? I did everything they told me to. And I want to say here, when he says I'm the bad guy, he really does seem to be realizing from Prendergast's description, oh, I am the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, I really was about to shoot my wife and daughter, but but I wasn't, that wasn't my plan. Like, how did I get into this situation, right? Yeah. yeah. And he he turns that into sort of a general complaint about how he did everything he was supposed to do. You know, yeah. Good citizen. He worked for a defense contractor, you know, et cetera. And Prendergast says, is that what this is about? You're angry because you got lied to. They lie to everybody. They lied to the fish. Hmm. And Bill says, you know, I got a gun in my pocket. You want to draw showdown between the sheriff and the bad guy? It's beautiful. Prendergast doesn't want to do it. And he, uh, he says he won't, won't have a choice not to, yeah, not to kill him if he if he draws. Mm. And uh, Bill says, of course, he has a choice. He says, I can kill you or you can kill me and my little girl can get the insurance. Oh, that's... Although he's unemployed, I'm not sure. Well, he might have insurance. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could be. I don't know. <laughs> and Prendergast says, don't you want to see her grow up? And Bill says, behind bars? And he just shakes his head. So Bill draws his gun. He gives a countdown, and then he draws his gun. And it's a, the daughter's blue squirt gun that he got from the house. <laughs> but it's only out for a second, not long enough for Prendergast to see that it's a fake gun. Prendergast shoots Bill, who falls backward onto a wooden rail. It breaks in half because it's old and <laughs> decrepit and all that. And then he falls off off the edge of the pier, back into the ocean. And he just bobs in the waves, uh, looking very dead. Mm. So then we see back at uh, Elizabeth's house, just a couple blocks away from there, the captain, the police captain, is outside the house talking to reporters. He tries to welcome Prendergast as he passes through on his way to the house. Right, and, uh, and he was like, oh, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't the Venice police who did this. It was my police, and, you know, <laughs> he was taking credit for everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and Prendergast doesn't stop for him. He just passes through, and as he does, he says, fuck you, Captain Yardley. Fuck you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and he just keeps on moving. 
We see Sandra being wheeled away in a gurney by paramedics. She seems okay. So that's encouraging. Prendergast tells Elizabeth to go ahead and let Adele have her party. Elizabeth can tell her about Bill's death tomorrow. Yeah, because all these little girls have just showed up at their gate, right? Right. Gifts and everything. And, (laughs) and, you know, she's like, what are we going to do? Now I'm going to say here, though, her house is a crime scene. (laughs) The cops are going to kick her out of the house. And really, they're not going to let her have a birthday party. But for this movie, we'll ignore all that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess as long as they stay in the backyard, they might be all right. (laughs) Prendergast tells Adele his name will be Mud when his wife finds out he's still a cop. So it sounds like he may actually not be going to take the early retirement anymore. Well, it's funny because she tells him her name, right? And she says, Mm -hmm. what's your name? And he says, Mud. (laughs) And she's like, no, (laughs) it's not Mud. And then he's like, well, it's going to be when my wife finds out I'm not a cop. I'm still a cop, right? So, yeah, I think he's like, yeah, I'm not. And and I really like this because this is that twist on the lethal weapon thing, right? Where. It's not like, oh, this is my last day. I'm trying to get out of here. It's like, <laughs> oh, this is my last day, but actually I want to stay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was only doing it because uh, because of concern for his wife, and uh, now he's tempering that a little bit. <laughs> Good for him. So then we see that home video that Bill was watching earlier. It's still playing on the TV might have even been rewound or maybe it's just been edited or something but right. it's going back to um a scene that we had seen earlier when bill was watching the video zooms in on bill smiling and that's the end so I mean, I've mentioned from the beginning here, I've had these ambivalent feelings and different feelings as, as I watch this. So here, here is where I come down and I'll be curious to see if you agree or disagree or have a different point of view. Mm-hmm. They said, based on what I remembered from when we were kids and seeing the commercials and everything, I thought it was going to be this sort of, you know, white guy gets put upon and, you know, reacts against society or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and as we see, that's kind of what it feels like for a long time. But yeah. and this is not, you know, this is not where the writer was coming from. The writer later said, Oh, yeah, this is a case of like this 1950s style white guy having to deal with things changing and all this. And I don't care what the writer says. Here's my response to the movie. <laughs> my response is this guy is fucking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and he is using all these things, all these slights of people and the way people treat him as an excuse for what he is doing. But at Mm. the end of the day, this is a guy who is going to kill his wife and daughter. Yeah. And to say that this is some commentary on white people losing their power to say, no, I don't see that. This is a, this is a psychotic person who cannot separate his own psyche from his family and when his own daughter doesn't react at a at a very young age the right way to his gift he goes crazy yeah and so that that's my feeling i don't care what the writer thought i don't care what anybody Mm -hmm. else said that's what i feel and i actually think it's more interesting Mm -hmm. as you see that where to me it is not interesting and again it's kind of high school level 
when we're just saying, oh, here's a guy and he's getting bumped at the bus stop and he's, you know, people are being assholes to him. It's like, no, he's putting this on those people. And that comes back to what I was saying about, you know, if he had been in the person in the other circumstance in any of those cases, he would have interpreted the same way, right? I'm being put upon. Yeah. You know, for the phone not being available. You know, I'm being put upon for some asshole customer wanting me to serve breakfast when we no longer serve breakfast, right? I mean, so so that so that's where I come down at the end. I mean, and I'm curious mm-hmm. what what do you think? What do you feel? Oh, I agree. I agree. You know, I we had picked this movie for the uh, Rage Against the Machine series because both of us were under the impression that that's the kind of movie it was. And right. um, it's actually something a little different. <laughs> right. And and I will defend that in the sense that I think that's what he thinks he's doing, mm-hmm. but it's not. Yeah. Right. And, th- and that comes back to the Bonnie and Clyde, right? They kept pretending or thinking they were defending the common person, but that's not what they were doing. Right, right. That was just a pretense. Yeah, it was convenient. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so I totally agree. It's both. It doesn't apply to this to, to this theme, and it does in the sense that this person is using that as a shield or thinking that's what they're doing, mm-hmm. even though it's not really right. And I'll also say, you know, and and I think, and this is a criticism people made against the film, and I don't. I don't know if the film itself can be criticized for this or is this part of, or it's a criticism of this character. But when we talk about Rage Against the Machine, it's not like Network that we started with where, oh, these powers on high that be are setting these agendas so they can make money and they can do whatever, right? Mm-hmm. This is a guy who's pissed off at the common person. He's pissed off at the common immigrant who started their own business He's pissed off at the tellers at the Whamburger, right? He's he's not trying to go after the people actually running these companies. He's not, you know, it's he's just pissed off at the average person who's trying to get through their day. Yeah. And I think that's a real interesting comment on this character. Yeah. He sees himself as put upon, and and he is, but then again, so is everybody else that he runs into. Although, uh, you know, a lot of the people don't handle it with the good grace they should. They, (laughs) a lot of the people end up creating problems for themselves where if they just let defense alone and let him go do his thing, they'd probably (laughs) be a lot better off at the end of the day. But, uh, but still, Yeah. yeah, they're, they're, I mean, it's the kind of thing, like if this was they live, uh, you could just imagine a bunch of the aliens watching this and just laughing uproariously at the stupid humans, you know, attacking each other. Did not know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, again, I mean, to me, the difference between this and they live comes down to at the end of the day, Roddy Piper was going after the structure, right? He was going mm-hmm. after the people who were the aliens who were doing this, right? right. He was sympathetic to the common man. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the opposite. So I think it would, it would be, yeah, it would be really easy to say this is the exact opposite of they live. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's in, uh, interesting. And, you know, that's a great comment that you made there. <laughs> okay. So you, you've said, I mean, you have a hard time, 
differentiating different acting. And as I said, I think certainly the first half, there's just a lot of really bad acting. <laughs> but as the film gets more interesting and complex and focuses more on the char- main characters, right? Because in the first half, you have a lot more of these side characters than you do in the yeah. last half. And I think by the time you get to the end with Robert Duvall on that pier, you know, eating popcorn and giving mm. his speech, he's doing a great job. Mm. But in a lot of ways, what I feel like is I feel like this is kind of a first draft where both script wise and editing wise, if you could go back and do it another time, mm. you know, you could do that better execution. Like I mentioned, taxi driver is so many common themes to this, but it's so much better executed on an acting and execution level. Mm. But I also say, and I, I think this is something that is good for me about our podcast, right? So first of all, I never would have gone back to see this film. I mean, I remembered it from back when it came out, but I had no interest in seeing it mm-hmm. uh, until we did our theme. And if I had started to watch it in the first half hour, I would have stopped, right? Because I just <laughs> w- reacted so badly to the acting. And at that point in the movie, again, it's just, oh, white guy who's being offended by immigrants and whatever. And it just wouldn't have been something I wanted to watch. Yeah. But watching all the way through for this podcast, it becomes a much more interesting movie that I am glad that I saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I expected it to be relentlessly grim. Uh, and it's, it's not really, it's got a lot of, uh, little leavening scenes in it. There's some humor here and there, but as you find out that it's not really him against the world, it's more him spiraling into goofiness. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I got a kick out of it. I, I think I liked it better. Than I expected to, I still, I, I wouldn't say it's going to be one of my favorites, but I, I, I'd say worth watching. Yeah. I, I found it worth watching. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's worth watching in, in large part because it's worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. It, I mean, you should watch this with someone else so you can then have a debate slash discussion about it. Mm-hmm. That would be my feeling. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So, you know, let's talk about some of the actors and such here. I mean, you know, you have Michael Douglas, so obviously part of a famous acting family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) His father being a famous actor. He's done a lot of different films over time that were pretty significant. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, he said it's interesting, you know, reading in Wikipedia and such. So they came up with this haircut for him, which, as I said, is that kind of IBM, you know, <laughs> engineer haircut, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not totally a buzz cut, but it's pretty close to that. I think it's, I think it might be called a crew cut. I'm not sure. Yeah, that would make sense. And he said the haircut really helped him as an actor because it really mm-hmm. like gave him the angle to go with on this character and being the engineer. And we've mm-hmm. talked about the white shirt and the tie. One of the things we haven't mentioned is he has like, three or four pens in that little plastic pen holder. <laughs> oh, pocket protector. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the definition of an IBM engineer, right? Oh, yeah. 
But yeah, I just, I love that progression where it's like, oh, here's a guy who's being annoyed by everyday life. No, here's a guy who his wife divorced him and he's telling her throughout the day, he's calling her and letting her know that he's going to come and clearly kill her and her daughter. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, oh my God, what a, you know, what, I mean, it starts out so innocent and pure and it just turns out to be so dark. It's just amazing. <laughs> I was surprised that Robert Duvall was in the movie until we got to the last scene. Because Duvall has done great work mm -hmm. so often. I mean, I've, I'm not sure I've even ever seen him do a bad role. I always find him interesting to watch. And, and of course, he was in Network, another one of our mm -hmm. movies in this theme. But yeah, I, um, oh, uh, The Apostle. I haven't seen yeah. that for years, but it was a neat movie. I, remember, and he he did, directed I think he that, produced yeah. that and maybe even directed it. Like he said, yeah, and, and it's a great movie and it's a good example of what, what he was capable of doing. And so what confused me in the first half of the film where I was seeing all this bad acting and bad writing and everything, it was like, why would this guy be in this film? And that's why I say, I think the last scene is really important because mm -hmm. the last scene is like, oh, here's where a great actor, you know, it's kind of similar to Columbo, right? You know, like, oh, I'm just this guy. You don't have to pay attention to me. <laughs> I'm kind of frumpy. <laughs> yeah. Know? But ultimately, I have a gun, and I'm going to shoot you. Not that Colombo <laughs> did that. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I suspect that's why he did it. And, I, and also, on the one hand, his relationship with his wife, it's like, why are you having this? But on the other hand, again, like I said, from my own personal experience, I think there's a lot of reality to that, right? And mm -hmm. um, you have this combination of saying, look, I'm going to do what my wife wants because I love her, but eventually kind of standing up for himself against his wife. And one of the things we didn't mention, but early on when he sort of stands up to her and tells her to make the chicken with skin and all that, she, she kind of likes, Oh shit, I guess I'm going to have to, you know, do what he wants. Right. Like mm -hmm. this isn't just my show. Right. Yeah. Um, when, when, when he finally calls her on her, BS, uh, she, uh, she sort of snaps too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, oh, I'm sorry. I did not look up the actress's name. I'll have to do so, but his partner, Sandra. So what do you think of her? I mean, I, you know, clearly in terms of casting, it's sort of casting from photo, right? Here's a good looking minority woman to be his partner. It's a little hard to believe she was actually his partner to, into my mind, but yeah, I uh, I didn't have a problem with her. I know uh, I well, I don't know. I I seem to remember that she was one of the actors who uh, whose acting you weren't too fond of. But uh, yeah. for me, I thought I thought um, for the role, I I, I thought she uh, she worked pretty well. She came across as likable. You could see her actually getting along with Prendergast. Uh, you know. Having yeah. a friendly, cordial relationship and all that, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I wasn't bowled over by her, but I thought she was fine. Right, right. So Barbara Hershey, I mean, you have this. Yeah. One of the things I really, really feel bad for for female actors is they're always 
so often stuck into this wife slash girlfriend role, right? Mm -hmm. And so Barbara Hershey here is doing that, but she's very much present throughout the movie. As we said, she does have agency. She does make, especially at the end, multiple smart decisions. But throughout most of the movie, she is the woman in peril sitting around, you know, kind of motivating things because she's trying to get people to protect her. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. So how do you feel about that and her role? Yeah, I mean, that uh, it was, that was what you needed for the movie. I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they could have tried to give her a whole, you know, side story about, uh, she's got to go to work as a graphic designer, you know, whatever. But, but, uh, no, I thought, I thought for the story, I thought she was put in judiciously, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you, you see her on the phone a few times, uh, and then at the end she gets a chance to shine a little bit, you know, and uh, show her some resourcefulness. Um, yeah, I, 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 again, I wasn't, uh, overwhelmed, but, uh, I found her fine. <laughs> right. Well, overall, okay. In terms of worth watching, I mean, I guess, uh, my take on worth watching would be if you watch the whole movie, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's worth watching because you're going to have to think about these things and make your own choices. And there are some surprises, but I will say in terms of the question of, is it rage against the machine? Like you say, I think it's the character of defense bill is pretending to rage against the machine. As I said, <laughs> no, I think he is just a mentally ill person. Yeah. Who is using that as an excuse. Right. No, I think, uh, I, I think that's it. Yeah. So that's where we come down <laughs> on the worth watching podcast. So, yeah. um, but you know what? I, at the end of the day, like I say, I wouldn't have watched through this movie if it weren't for the podcast. I'm glad I did. It's the perfect, you want to have a conversation with your friend after you see the movie kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, come to think of it, Michael Douglas was in another movie called The Game that I mm. really enjoyed a lot. And that is I never watched fun... it. I, oh. Now, my take is, tell me if I'm wrong, that that's the most dangerous game sort of theme where someone's hunting somebody, or am I wrong about that? Yes, but it's there's there's a lot more to it than that. Okay. And, and the ending is, it's both ridiculously implausible and really cool. I haven't seen well, it for maybe, a year. Maybe this should be a host choice. <laughs> Where we, we can get do back that. To that. Right. Okay. We will see you next week with our next rage-filled film. <laughs>
around the job of the right stuff. That's why you 